Well, as Pastor Keith said, we are back in Jude tonight, so if you will go there. The end of your Bible, if you hit Revelation, hang left, and you'll find a little book of Jude. Well, over the last several weeks, we've been considering these little letters that fit on one page of our Bibles, Second John, Third John, Philemon, and now Jude. This is the second message in the book of Jude, and we'll be looking at the body of the letter tonight. Verses 3 to 16. So I want to go ahead and read that, beginning with what we talked about last week in verse 1. So we'll read verses 1 through 16. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walk in the way of Cain, and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error, and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are blemishes on your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear, looking after themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever." It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with ten thousand of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism. To gain advantage. You know, when you're a young preacher, sometimes the texts are pretty intimidating. This is one of those texts tonight. This is so full of so much illusion and metaphor, it makes interpretation quite difficult. But the one good thing about it is I'm probably not going to satisfy all your questions. I want to say that up front. Um, But I do want us to get the forest. I want us to see why is Jude writing this? And why is he describing the men in these ways, in these metaphorical kind of ways? Last week we saw our identity. We said that Jude is writing this letter to encourage this church or churches to contend for the faith, to fight for the faith, to defend the faith in the face of people who are trying to undermine it, false teachers. And I said that Jude really has three things to say to the church. Know your identity, know your enemy, and know your responsibility. Tonight, we consider the second point, know your enemy, in verses 3 to 16. In April 2009, the worldwide popular rock band Green Day released the first single from their eighth album called 21st Century Breakdown. The single was entitled, Know Your Enemy. The song is a rallying call which, according to the song's writer, Billy Joe Armstrong, the lead singer of the band, is about, quote, self-liberation, liberating yourself from what you see on television. The song asks the listener this question repeatedly, do you know your enemy? The song calls us to, quote, 
revolt against the honor to obey, to, quote, overthrow the vast majority, and, quote, to burn down the foreman of control. He's calling his listeners to, quote, he's reminding his listeners, rather, that, quote, silence is the enemy, so, quote, rally up the demons of your soul and pursue revolution. Well, the album is clearly a politically charged anti-Bush administration kind of album. He's attacking politics and media and the way that life is pictured on television sometimes. And who is the enemy in his song? The enemy is anyone who would tell you what to do to seek to control you or manipulate you. That is the enemy. What's ironic is that the very people that Billy Joe Armstrong says are the enemy, Jude says, in fact, are not. Rather, our enemy as a Christian is the false teacher who would come in and say, burn down the foreman of control, revolt against the honor to obey. In other words, for Green Day, the enemy is conservatism, and the hero is the revolutionary, the liberal, which shouldn't surprise you because they're a punk rock band. But for Jude, the enemy is Green Day's hero. Aldous Huxley, the move from the popular culture to the older culture, the 20th century writer Aldous Huxley, wrote the following. Like many of his contemporaries, he says he took it for granted that life has no meaning. He says, I had motives for not wanting the world to have meaning. What were those motives? He says, the philosopher who finds no meaning in the world is not concerned exclusively with a problem in pure metaphysics. In other words, he's not concerned with just how do we rationally understand that. Honestly, listen to what Huxley says. The philosopher is also concerned to prove that there is no valid reason why he personally should not do as he wants to do. In other words, arguing for no meaning in life gives your, gives your life permission to live however you want. Then Huxley changes to a more personal note and sounds eerily similar to the teachers Jude is warning us about. Listen to what Aldous Huxley writes. He says, for myself, as no doubt for most of my contemporaries, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation. The liberation we desired was simultaneously liberation from a certain political and economic system and liberation from a certain system of morality. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. We objected to the political and economic systems because it was unjust. There was one admirably simple method of confuting these people and at the same time justifying ourselves in our political and erotic revolt. We could deny that the world had any meaning whatsoever. Francis Bacon made the same point even more concisely when he said, quote, man prefers to believe what he prefers to be true. So why would I say all this? The enemy for the Christian is the one that Jude describes in this passage. And the enemy that Jude describes in this passage is the teacher who would come in and tell you, whether they came into a church meeting or not, or were just on the radio, who would tell you that you need to liberate yourself from any sort of moral restraint, that you need to liberate yourself from anyone who would call you to, to a certain lifestyle, that you need to revolt against anyone who would call you to obey Jesus. What's ironic in this situation is that these people were virtually indistinguishable to the Christians who, to whom Jude was writing. Jude was, in fact, pretty surprised when he wrote this letter. He felt it necessary to write to them because they were being duped by these men who were, according to verse 4, telling them that they could accept Jesus as Lord and live however they want. So three points to tonight's sermon. Here they are. I'll give them to you in advance. Number one, what has happened? Verse 4. Number two, what will happen? That's where we'll spend most of our time, verses 5 to 16. And number three, what must happen? What has happened, what will happen, and in light of that, what must happen? 
So point number one, what has happened? Well, false teachers have gotten into the church. Notice verse four. For certain people, slightly derogatory term, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who, here's the essence of our enemy, pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Ungodly people had crept into the church, hiding their true characters and motives, pretending to be godly members of the Christian church. Jude is warning them because even though they look like Christians, these are actually false teachers. They have perverted grace. That is, they, have, they are teaching that you can accept Jesus as a Savior and live contrary to him, live in a way that's totally unlike him, especially sexually. And as a result, they are functionally denying Jesus' lordship by their behavior, though they would claim to follow him. They are twisting the Christian faith into something that it isn't. They say one thing, and they live a completely different way. And this happens very, very subtly. Those of you who have lived in a home for any amount of time, I hope that you haven't had termite problems. That can be absolutely devastating to a home. What happens when termites creep in? Well, one thing you don't know, that they're there. And home, owner, home builders would tell you up front, do everything you can to protect yourself from termites. Build the right way. Protect the wood the right way so that you don't ever have this problem. But some of us probably have had that problem where we've had an older home or perhaps, you know, an older home where wood was rotting or something, and, and we, we discovered we had a serious termite problem. While prevention is the greatest, you know, greatest means of cure for termites, there are treatment options that you can do should you discover that you have termite in, termites in your home. One is fumigation, right, where the, the man who deals with termites would come in to the, to, the, to the home and completely spray it down, and you have to leave for several hours lest you be contaminated by what he's spraying. And the problem with that is that it doesn't necessarily kill all the termites. It may kill all the living termites, but it doesn't kill the eggs or the queen, and it doesn't eventually last. In fact, sometimes the fumigation has to come again and do it again and again. There are other treatments available, though. One other treatment is what's called direct wood treatments. Direct wood treatments are treatments that are applied directly to the wood in the home, not merely to spraying down the walls or spraying down different crevices in the house, but application directly to the wood, ideally during the building of the home, so that the wood is protected from termite invasion. Well, like termites, false teachers can creep in to the church, and Jude is appealing in this letter for direct wood treatment, not merely fumigation. He wants both, but he is calling for direct wood treatment. He's saying, this is deadly. This is going to bring the structure of the church down. We need to take this seriously, and we need to go after the enemy. We'll look at how we're supposed to do that later, but suffice it to say, we are to take it very, very seriously. So how should we apply this to ourselves as a church? Let me give you just five quick summary statements. Number one. If you ha can't tell already, faith, the faith of the gospel is repeatedly threatened, not merely from those outside of the church, but from those who are in the church. Remember Acts 20, verse 29, Paul warns the Ephesian elders that there will be people who will come in from among yourselves. These false teachers will arise from among yourselves to lead God's people away. That's the great fear. That's, that's scary that we can actually, within the, within the membership of a church, have people who can influence us in these ways. So that's the first one. Number two, a church will have or could have people in its membership who are not Christians who are not genuine. You just need to be aware of that, okay? The wheat and the tares will grow together until the harvest, Jesus said. 
So as much as we humanly possible, humanly can possibly keep that membership as pure as possible, we do not know the heart. Only God knows the heart. And as a result, people can creep into the membership who are not too true Christians. I use that language of creep in because that's the language that Jude uses. Notice in verse 4, they have crept in unnoticed. Now, it's a shame on that church that that happened. It's one of the reasons Jude is writing them to contend, because if they were contending the way they should have, these men wouldn't have crept in unnoticed. They would at least been noticed. Number three, God is not surprised when this happens. God is not surprised. Why do I say that? Verse four again, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. God knew. God knew. Would you, would you hold your finger there and turn with me very quickly to Proverbs chapter 16 and notice this powerful truth. Proverbs 16. In verse 4, the Lord has made everything for its purpose, Proverbs 16, 4, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Well, this is a day of trouble, and the Lord was not surprised when it happened. Number four, we cannot accept Jesus and live However, we want. That's really clear, right? Because he is calling them to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And he's reminding them that these are ungodly people. They are godless people who pervert grace. Who pervert that gospel that Pastor Rich gave us this morning. Who heard the free offer of grace covering your past. Grace covering your present. Grace covering your future. And those people heard that. And they did what Jude is condemning here. They took that as a license for immorality. They committed the Romans 6 error that Paul is writing against. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. They say, yes, by all means. Remember what we said last week about our identity. We are called. What are we called to? We're called called with and to a holy calling. 2 Timothy 1.9, our calling is a holy calling. So we can't live however we want. We're called. We've been called out of darkness. Why would we go back into darkness? We're loved. Why are we loved by God the Father? Those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. So our, the, the love of the Father for us has as its goal conformity to the image of Jesus Christ. So our love is to, to holiness. The love of God for us is to holiness, not as a license for unholiness. And our keeping is that we not, might not be, we might not fall away from him into a pattern of sin that would lead to destruction, right? We are kept for Jesus Christ. What are we kept from? Verse 24, the end of this letter. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, that is committing apostasy, walking away from Jesus, not merely just stumbling into sin. We all, that happens to us. We all commit sin in that way, but stumbling here is definitive renunciation of the Christian faith and walking away from him. We are kept so that that might not happen. So our, our identity is all wrapped up, and this is, a, this is an impossibility for us as Christians. Lastly, in this application to us as a church, you will know a tree by its fruit. You will know a tree by its fruit. That's what Jesus told us, right? Jude is looking at the fruit of the lives of these men, and he's saying there's no way they can be Christians. Why? Because they're living in a way that Christ commanded them not to live. They're living in the very things that Christ died so that they would not live in. So remember those things, church. It's serious. So that's what's happened. Number two, what will happen? So that's the first thing. What has happened? False teachers have crept in unnoticed. They're perverting the gospel. And Jude is writing to remind them of who these men are, and he reminds them what will happen to them. And the summary is, God is going to judge them, and so should you. So that's what will happen. God will judge. He basically has an argument that he starts from verse 5 
all the way down through verse 16. And his argument flows something like this. I'm just going to give you the argument, and then I'm going to try to walk us through the text little by little. Here's the argument. God judges the wicked. False teachers are wicked. God will judge false teachers. That's his argument. Simple as it is. God judges the wicked. He quotes some Old Testament examples. False false teachers are wicked. He points to evidence in their life that that's the case. And then he says, so God's going to judge false teachers too. God's going to judge these people who are in your midst right now. So let's see that, okay? Number one, God judges the wicked. We see this in verses 5 to 7. He gives three Old Testament examples. The first Old Testament example is the unbelief of the Israelites as they were out of the Exodus getting ready to go into the promised land. The second one is the angels who left their position of authority. And then the third is Sodom and Gomorrah. And he says in all those situations, God judged them for their wickedness. So he's basically underscoring the fact that God is a God of judgment. God hates sin. God punishes sin. Let's look at three examples. Verse 5. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, he's saying, listen, you once knew this. I've taught this to you. You've heard these things, but you've forgotten the seriousness and severity of God's judgment. Let me explain. So he gives three Old Testament examples. First. Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. This is the account of the Exodus. Remember, children of Israel delivered from bondage, go through the Red Sea. Pharaoh's army is drowned. They're in the wilderness. They receive the law and the covenant. They're on the verge of the promised land. Spies are sent out. Encouraging reports are given. We can take it, Joshua and Caleb say. Let's go. They say, I don't think so. I don't think so. They're not believing God. They're not trusting God. They look at the land and they say, there's too many enemies there. We're going to die. And God says, Caleb says, no, we can do it with the Lord's help. We can conquer him. God will give us the land. That's what he promised. That's why he delivered us. Let's go. He's shown his faithfulness all these years leading us. They say, no, God didn't laugh at that. He said, fine, dead in the wilderness, generation gone. That's how God feels about disbelief, unbelief. We live in a culture that thinks unbelief is not a big deal. Oh, I lack a little faith now and then. Yeah, I don't trust God. That's a massive problem. That's a massive problem to not trust the God who has spoken, who has revealed himself, who has said, this is what I'm like. This is who I am. This is my word. And to think that you can take it and not trust it. Who do you think you are? That's his posture. Because that's God's posture toward their unbelief. He didn't look and say, oh, they're just so frail. Of course God is a father to us, and he understands our frame. I'm not saying that. But this willful rebellion in the face of unbelievable mercy and grace and provision from God was not winked at by God. He does not wink at our unbelief. It is a serious sin. Second example is in verse 6. The angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal change under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Now, what is he talking about here? I don't remember reading that. Well, there's two possibilities, I think. First is that it's referring to the fall of Satan and all the fallen angels that occurred with it. I don't think that's what he's referring to. Rather, I think what he's referring to is what Genesis 6 says. So would you turn back with me, hold your place in Jude, and go back to the very first book of the Bible, uh, Genesis chapter 6 and verses 1 and 2. The angels who did not keep their proper positions of authority. And here's how they did it. Verse 6, or chapter 6 of Genesis, verse 1. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God. Now, that the sons of God there is not, I don't think, a reference to uh, people. It's a reference to angels. Job refers to angels as sons of God a lot. The sons of God saw the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. 
Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. How did these giant men happen? Angels sleeping with humans. It says that's something right out of Percy Jackson and the Lightning Thief. So I was telling the high schoolers this morning that that's that's what happened. Now what happened here? Well, first of all, let me answer your obvious question: Is that kind of stuff going on today? I don't think so. Here's why: The flood destroyed them. Secondly, there's a second part of the verse that says they left their proper place and God has kept them in God is keeping them in eternal chains until the judgment day. So he's keeping them. He's got his eye on them. He's holding them back. That's not happening again. But what's the point? These angels left their sphere of authority, and they went into an area that they were not allowed to go to. God said no. They said go. And that's a problem. That brought about the judgment of God on them. And that's what these false teachers are doing. God said no. False teachers said go. Go. Do it. It's okay. And Judah's reminding them, you remember what God did when, when proud people thought they knew better than God and started to live like they wanted to live? You know what God did to them? He kept them internal change, and they're going to be facing a great judgment one day. That's what's happened. So that's what happened. God judged the, the pride. So he judged Israel for their unbelief. What was the punishment? Death in the wilderness. No entrance into the promised land. God judged the, false, the, the proud angels. How? By keeping them in internal chains. And now notice lastly, the last judgment, Sodom and Gomorrah, verse 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. We don't have to be reminded of that. Genesis 19. Due to the rampant homosexuality in that city, contrary to what liberal scholars today think was the legitimate problem, which was a lack of hospitality, Believe it or not, what happened was homosexual acts brought about the judgment of God. That's what Jude says, which likewise indulged in sex and morality and pursued unnatural desire, other flesh, flesh that they weren't allowed to have by God. I could talk more about that, but for the sake of time, I won't. Notice what Jude is doing here, right? He's just giving the three Old Testament examples to underscore the fact that God judges the wicked. And notice they increase in severity, don't they? Israel met with death. The proud angels met with eternal chains. What did Sodom and Gomorrah meet with? Instant judgment, fire and brimstone out of heaven, and the punishment of eternal fire. So that's the point. God judges the wicked, and he's reminding the church of that. Number two, false teachers are wicked. So he's moving his argument now. God judges the wicked. That's what's going to happen to wicked people. Now I'm going to show you that the false teachers are more like these kind of people than you realize. And he starts it in verse 8. Yet in like manner, see, he's attaching, attaching it to them. In like manner, just like these people behaved, now we got the false teachers on the screen. In like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. They are immoral, proud, unsubmissive, and unbelieving. First of all, these false teachers are blasphemers. Look at verse 9. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Now, I don't remember reading that in my Old Testament. Where in the world did the archangel Michael dispute about the body of Moses with the devil? Well, this is a quotation that these Jewish readers would have been very familiar with. It's from a non-canonical book called The Assumption of Moses. It was a story that they would have known about. Just, now, let me say this so that you don't fear. So he's like, so, so now an inspired writer named Jude wrote an inspired letter that quoted an uninspired source. 
Is that a problem for you? It shouldn't be. Because Acts, Paul quotes Greek poets, right? And he doesn't assume that they're inspired. Rather, what he's saying is the illustration that he's pulling from, whether it is true or not, we don't know, the illustration that he's pulling from does serve his point, which is this. Those angels, that Michael the archangel, the head angel, when there was this situation with the body of Moses and what to do with it, disputing with the devil about it, he did not take it upon himself to make that decision. He looked to the Lord and said, the Lord rebuke you. And he's saying these false teachers, they don't even care about that. They don't show any respect for God. They blaspheme all that they do not understand. They say things that God has never said, relying on their dreams to say it. They're way out of bounds, is his point. They're way out of bounds. They have no respect for God. They don't submit to God. They don't honor God. They don't honor God's revelation. They don't honor God's men. They don't honor God's leaders. They don't honor anybody. And that's his point. And that's where I'll have to leave it for now. Just uh, take your questions to our resident professors, Pastors Rich Barcellus and Sam Waldron. Number uh, uh, verse 10. He gives some more examples. But these people blaspheme all they do not understand. And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Verse 11, woe to them. That's a curse. For they are walking in the way of Cain. What was Cain doing? Well, he was disobeying God. He was choosing wickedness over goodness. And abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. They were greedy, uh, preachers for hire, taking money to say say what you wanted to hear them say. And perished in Korah's rebellion. What was Korah's rebellion all about? Why did the earth open up and swallow Korah and all those who disobeyed? Because they were opposing church leadership. They were opposing Israel's leadership. And that's what these false teachers are doing. Nobody can talk to them. Nobody can correct them. They're, they're unsubmissive. And then he wraps up. Describing their depravity in verse 12, these are blemishes on your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Now, what's that a reference to? Love feasts were communion services with a potluck tacked on to it. You know that the early church did not take the Lord's Supper with bread and wafer or wafer in the little cup. They actually had a meal together. They ate a meal together and at a time, that's when they would celebrate the Lord's Supper. They would break the bread and pass the cup around. Well, obviously, these people are involved in these communion services, and they're around, and they're doing so without any reverence, without any fear, looking after themselves. They're just concerned about themselves. And he says, they're blemishes on your love feast. They ought not to be there. They ought not to be there. Especially partaking of you in that most solemn and sacred of ordinances, the Lord's Supper. And then he uses all these metaphors from nature to describe their depravity. They're waterless clouds swept along by winds. They're fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. So he's he's appealing to nature, which they would have been very familiar with. This waterless clouds, fruitless trees... Wild waves and wandering stars. What does he mean? Well, we can't know everything that he means but because it's, it's metaphor and it's a lot of illusion. But here's what we, we do get. What do you expect from a cloud that's full? You expect rain. What do you expect from a tree? You expect fruit. What do you expect from stars? In those days, people used stars to guide them. They wanted guidance. They're wandering stars. They're not guiding anybody anywhere right. They're waterless clouds. The point is is that they make all these promises and they don't deliver on any of them. They say these things and they don't deliver. They're a fruitless tree. They're a waterless cloud. They're promising rain. No rain comes. They say, send me a gift. I will bless your life. God's mercy will fall down on you. They speak across our television sets. Sow a seed into our ministry. You will receive divine healing. If you read this passage carefully, TBN is scary. TBN is scary. 
I know that there aren't many here, but anybody who's listening to this, if you're a Christian that soaks that up like gospel truth, you have serious discernment problems. And you are putting your soul in peril. The greatest need is discernment here. And we get discernment by reading the Bible and comparing what we see there with what we read here. God judges the wicked, false teachers are wicked, and so God will judge false teachers. And that's what verse 14 to 16 is all about. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. That's a quote from First Enoch, another non-canonical book. But they would have been familiar with that. So he quotes it, and then he says, these, verse 16, are grumblers. He's, he's, he's saying, God did all this. God judges. False teachers are this way. God's going to judge them in exactly the same way. That's his big argument falling over the whole passage. You remember Martin Luther when he appeared before the Diet of Worms and the various representatives of the Roman Catholic Church were standing there, and they said, are you the author of these books that were out in front of him? And he said, yes. And they replied, these books contain heresies against our holy church. Do you recant what you have written? Martin Luther said, I can't do that because if I were to recant all of them, I would have to overturn things that you accept. I would have to recant truths that you accept. He didn't ask him, so follow up on that. Tell us more about that. He just said, no, do you recant what you've written? He's like, I can't do that because I would recant some of the things that you would agree with. But he says, there's that the first part of my writings you would agree with. And then he gets, God gives him courage and he says, but the second part you wouldn't because I've written against, quote, the foul doctrine and evil living of the popes past and present. Now, what, what's he doing? He's doing the same thing that Jude's doing. He's undermining their authority by appealing to their lifestyle. He's saying they cannot possibly be teachers sent from God. Look at how they live. Here's what Douglas Moo says. Jude's strategy is obvious. By identifying false teachers with traditional examples of notorious sinners, he moves his readers to reject those infiltrators and indeed to regard them with horror. Tom Schreiner writes, Jude exposed the moral rootlessness of ut- and utter godlessness of these intruders. By revealing their character, Jude stripped them of any authority in the congregation. No thinking Christian would follow people who are fundamentally selfish. Jude did not merely rebuke them. He unveiled who they truly were, removing any grounds for their influence in the church. Now, let me make application to you, especially if you're here tonight and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ. Does it, does it bother you that God judges wicked people in this way? It ought to. It ought to. Um, we see in these verses a profile of what a, what a person who's ripe for God's judgment is like. They're stubborn. They're self-righteous. They're inflexible to correction. They reject God's lordship over their life. They're deceptive. They do, not, they do not produce what's promised. They trick you. They tell you what you want to hear. They're deeply unhappy, right? Verse 16, these are grumblers, malcontents. They're deeply unhappy people. The fruit of their life is disgusting and unpredictable. It's like the waves crashing on the sea. They're bringing garbage out of the ocean. It's nasty. And they're divisive. That's the profile of a, of a wicked person. And how they get there? They rejected authority. They followed their own desire. Then they began committing sin. And the end is the reception of God's judgment. Do you know your enemy, church? Your enemy is not the person who says, live how you want. Live how you want. No, your enemy is the person who tells you to live how you want. Quickly, very quickly, uh, we're going to go to point three now. What must happen? 
what must happen. In light of what has happened, these false teachers have come into the church. What will happen, God will judge them. So what's our responsibility? What must happen for us? That's what Jude is writing about. We'll talk about that more next time. But here's verse 3, and this is his summary of why he's writing. He said, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to do this. Contend for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Very quickly, contend. Contend means it's where we get our word agonize from. It's a military athletic word. It refers to struggle or intense effort to give intensity to preserve the faith. What's the faith? The faith is the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel. It is that God is holy. He has made us in his image. We have been a very poor reflection of who God is. We have sinned against him, disobeyed him, rejected his authority. As a result, come under his judgment. But God has made a way through Jesus Christ by grace through faith to be reconciled to him so that we might become children of God, adopted into God's family, and by grace progressively conform to the image of Christ so one day we populate the new heavens and the new earth. So it's that message, the message about God and his holiness, man and his sinfulness, Christ and his work on the cross, and our response of faith and repentance that Jude is saying, you've got to contend for that. What's the weakness? What's the hole in the ship that's getting the water in? It's that response, right? You can respond in faith but not repentance. You can have Jesus and have sin too. That's what he's saying. Listen, you've got to contend for that. You have to fight for that. Listen, brothers and sisters, we are not called to be contentious, quarrelsome people about anything. Mark Dever says it this way. says, there can be big differences in small matters, and those don't necessarily matter. Big differences in small matters don't matter. Big, like little differences in big matters really matter. And this is the gospel This has to do with the heart of the Christian faith, and this really, really matters. There are things that are more important than other things. All things are important. Everything that God has spoken about is important. But there are some things, according to 1 Corinthians 15, which are of first importance, and that is the gospel of Christ. So that is the faith. Once for all delivered. By the time that Jude wrote this letter, the message of Christianity had already been fixed since the content of the faith was delivered once for all. Anyone who comes along and claims to have a new word from God to add to the faith is against Scripture. So, Joseph Smith, founder of Mormonism, additional authoritative revelation has come to him, written down in in the Book of Mormon. The Quran through the prophet Muhammad, addition authoritative revelation from God. All those religions came after Jude wrote, and by the time Jude wrote, Jude said, faith is done, it's fixed. The faith as a package, as a pattern of sound words, as sound doctrine is done. You can't change it. No more revelation is coming. That's what he's saying. So anyone who come after Jude wrote and say, there's new revelation, I have new words from God for you, Jude says, nope. The faith was once for all delivered, handed down from God. Which includes church tradition, which would be parallel with Scripture. If you're still struggling with that, I would invite you. I don't know how many seats are still available in James White's module in January, but this is why he's coming to teach our guys this. To teach them how to think about false teaching. So I would encourage you, if, that, if that's an area where you feel weak in, that you feel unequipped in as a Christian, take his class. Audit the class. I'm sure you'll really enjoy it. So, And then lastly, it's the contend for the faith which was once for all delivered to the pastors. Is that what it says? Once for all delivered to the saints. It's not only the pastor's responsibility to guard the purity of the church. It's the saint's responsibility to contend for the faith. Say, pastors, they're up there preaching, they're telling the truth. They're... But what about your neighbor? What about your friend? What about someone else who is saying things that are unhelpful to your other friends? Do you contend there? Yes, there's a way to contend and not be contentious. There's a way to speak truth humbly, graciously. We're not calling for anybody to... You know, cause, bring a military uprising and overthrow all false teaching. 
We're not, we're not coercing anybody. We're just speaking what God has said in love. That's, all, that's what we're called to do. Speak the truth. Bring the truth to light. You know, all around us, people are contending for things, right? Politicians are fighting for office. Humanitarians are fighting for causes. Athletes are contending for championships. Soldiers are contending for their country. Musicians are contending in hours of practice to put on that one performance that's going to bring the audience to their feet. Filmmakers are putting in thousands of hours to create media, contending for a worldview. Mothers are laboring, agonizing for their children, caring for them. Workers are devoting hours to fulfilling their vocation. All of that. The world is filled with contention. And Jude's saying, what kind of time, investment, energy is devoted to this in your life? Is it anywhere near Olympic intensity to desire to have that posture towards the preservation of the gospel? Jude says, you're not to be on the couch. You're not to be on the sidelines. You're to be in the game, in the game. So let me close with two words, how and why. How do I contend for the faith in a way that's gracious and humble? And Well, we'll talk about that more next time when we come to the latter part of the, the, the book because that's what he's going to tell us. He's going to tell us how we contend. But let me say these five things very quickly. First of all, remember your identity. Don't forget that. Don't forget called, loved, and kept. Why should you not forget that? Because that identity is going to flavor the way you interact with people. It will strip you of pride, strip you of superiority, of feeling like I've got, I've got it right and you got it wrong. It's going to strip you of that. Why? Because you're a desperate sinner who was saved by grace. You contributed nothing to your salvation. God had mercy on you. You were called out of darkness. You were loved by God before you ever were even lovely. You're kept not because of you but because of God. All that informs the way we go about doing this, and that means that it should be humble. It should be humble. It should have a flavor of humility about it. Number two, recognize that contention will be necessary. It's going to be necessary. It's not at this present moment that I'm aware of in our church, but it's going to be necessary, especially as pluralism's on the rise, especially as postmodernism continues to exercise its great sway over our culture. Over our culture, It's going to be necessary. Number three, know the faith for which you are called to contend. Know the faith. Get to know the gospel really well. It doesn't mean you have to be, you're not called to defend every single point of doctrine that exists. You're called to contend for the faith. And the faith is, at its heart, the gospel. So don't be crippled here. Don't be, I can't can't answer all the arguments here and all the arguments here and all the arguments here. Yes, we should be working to try to do that better. We should be educating ourselves, growing in that. But you're called for one thing. You were saved by the gospel to live for the gospel. So don't let the gospel be in any way undermined by the pattern of your life or by what you say or don't say. Number four, adopt the same attitude toward false teaching that God does. Adopt the same attitude toward false, not false teachers. Now, in the sense, let me be clear here, we are to adopt an attitude that of unwillingness to hear from them But Jude does not instruct his readers to kill false teachers. He calls them to not listen to them and to take no part with them, to say you're not welcome here if you're going to teach that. It's it's a posture totally contrary to holy war, which needs to be said in our day. Because when people think of fighting for the faith, they immediately think of, you know, sending planes into buildings. That's not the Christian faith. Christian faith does not advance by people killing, but by people dying to themselves. That's how it advances. Not by people killing others, but by dying for them that they might come to know the gospel. And number five, do your part to guard the membership of the church. Do your part to guard the membership of the church. Read the testimonies. Read the testimonies and say, is the gospel here? Not in a judgmental way, not in a mean way or mean-spirited way, but just ask the question. 
where's the gospel here? Is 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 God has God been recognized in His holiness? Has has this person sinned? If so, how? Why? Where's their sin? Where where are they owning up to the fact that they're a sinner? Do they understand what Jesus has done for them? Are they, are they do they understand grace and they're not trying to contribute works and they're not trying to just say, well, I'm coming into this church because I think it would make me a better person and I want to be a moral person and I want to live like you all. And, but there's not any sense of repentance or faith. or And then how's their life been changed as a result of that? Those are the kind of questions we want to ask lovingly. And then finally, and thank you for your patience with me tonight. Finally, why? Why is all this so serious? One reason, because God is glorified when his son is known as he is, and people only get saved when the gospel is gotten right. That's why it's so serious. It's serious for the eternal souls of people, and it's serious because God has attached his glory to this message, and we are not allowed to tamper with it. Let's pray. Father, thank you again tonight for your grace. What what a sweet, loving father you are that you would just you just roll up your sleeves and warn us tonight. Just warn us from your word. That's love. That is such love from you. Thank you for just for just caring for us in this way and saying, I love you, church. I love you. I don't want anybody to disrupt your peace. I don't want anybody to disrupt your joy or your experience and appreciation of the gospel. So, Lord, may we respond to this as you would call us to respond humbly but courageously. In Jesus' name, amen.